it's quite appropriate that we're opening this week's podcast with the sounds of church. Um, I'm recording this on a Sunday morning, after all. Although in the real world I can't hear anything as pretty and soothing as church bells. Um, I can only hear the woman in the cafe across the road rolling out her wooden notice boards, which make a horrible clattering noise. And all for the sake of telling us about rolls and sausage. I can also hear Zarbomba snoring in his blue chair. So nothing as soothing as church bells for my Sunday morning. Uh, And you might think that the sound of church bells in a nuclear podcast means that we'll be talking about the warning system. Church bells would have been used, after all, uh, in Scotland particularly, to sound the nuclear alert uh, in rural areas which didn't have a siren. But we've covered that topic in the Attack Warning Red episode. Um, You can find that in the archive if you want. It's According to the stats, it's the most popular one I've ever done, uh, closely followed by the Disposal of the Dead episode. So that's quite interesting. For my book that I'm writing just now, that tells me what you people want in terms of your nuclear work, and it seems to be horror. (laughs) You want to know all about the dreaded four-minute warning and then all the piles of corpses. But we're not talking about the nuclear warning this week. Uh, This week we're talking about uh, the religious aspects of nuclear war. We're talking about the Bible and the bomb. At least um, that was my intention until I started doing some research and found out that that topic, uh, the church and the bomb, is far too big. Far too big for one podcast episode There's no such thing as asking what was the church's attitude to the bomb because then of course you have to ask, well, which church? Uh, I'm from Glasgow and often growing up in Glasgow it seems as though there's only the Catholic and the Protestant. Of course, um, there are far more than that and each church, of course, had their own opinion. And then, of course, within each church you have a million different opinions also. You have the opinions of the, the men in charge and then you have the opinions of the laity, the people the ordinary men and women in the pews. They may well differ from what the the authorities are saying. And then, of course, when a church eventually issues its policy or its stance on nuclear weapons, it's never just a yes-no. They've often had to go through a very messy and painful, sometimes embarrassing public debate to get there. That was particularly true of the Church of England, um, who had a huge debate in the early 80s about what their stance should be on nuclear weaponry. They set up a working party who were of the opinion that the church should favour unilateral disarmament. But when it came to the actual verdict, the actual official policy, the church weren't bold enough to go with that. And instead they had a kind of, they kind of sat on the fence and said, yes, nuclear weapons are bad. But they didn't actually endorse Britain's total eradication, or England rather, Church of England, England's total eradication of them. They said instead that we, it'd be nice to get rid of them, but we should still remain a member of NATO, which is a bit, of course, like having your cake and eating it. You know, let's not dirty our hands with nuclear weapons, but by all means we'll shelter under the nuclear umbrella with America. So it's never uh, cut and dried. It's never easy when the church or a church issues their verdict on nuclear weaponry. And so I couldn't cram that all into one 20-minute podcast episode. So I've chosen one particular aspect for this episode and we're going to look at quite a colourful aspect. We're going to look at the Bible's Book of Revelation and how that was interpreted by some people in the nuclear debate. This 
isn't the first time the book of Revelation has been mentioned in this podcast. I think, uh, or at least I assume, that uh, I talked about it back in my special episode about Chernobyl. Um, That's because in the town centre of Chernobyl, there is a very sinister-looking statue. It's a very tall, spiky, jagged angel, and it's known as the Wormwood Star Memorial. I'd never seen it before, I'd never heard of it before, and my guide explained that it was um, erected as a memorial, of course, to the nuclear disaster, and it's because of the supposed Bible prophecy from Revelation, which predicts Chernobyl. Of course, some people think that's nonsense, some people don't, some people believe that the disaster was foretold in the Bible, and that's because of a particular um, section, which I'll read here to you from the Bible, It says, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So it's about um, a poison falling um, from heaven, a burning star falling from heaven and poisoning the water. Now, how is that relevant to Chernobyl? Well, the word Chernobyl translates as wormwood. And so with the Bible's talk of a, a star called wormwood poisoning the water, poisoning men, some people think, of course, that um, refers to the Chernobyl disaster. If you want to see a picture of that, um, the Wormwood Star Memorial, of course, you can Google it, or you can go to my website, juliemcdowell.com. Underneath photos, I've got a huge Chernobyl album there. And um, I've put pictures up of the of the memorial. It is definitely very sinister looking. It looks as if it's made of lots of spikes of jagged, broken wood. And that is the memorial of the Wormwood Star. So the Book of Revelation uh, pops up quite often in nuclear discourse. Usually it's pinned to Ronald Reagan and his religious beliefs. And to talk about the book of Revelation itself, um, I haven't read the Bible. Um, I went to a Catholic school, and so I know lots of prayers and hymns off by heart, but um, never actually opened the Bible. And I don't have any interest in starting now. And in fact, until this week when I began reading about this, I thought the book was called the Book of Revelations, but apparently it's just Book of Revelation, so I didn't even know that. So I'm not pretending that I know about the Bible or the book of Revelation. My interest is in how people interpreted it in terms of nuclear war and in terms of their response and reaction to nuclear war and the nuclear threat. Now, the main problem or the main interest from the book of Revelation to our topic is that some people believe that the book means that nuclear war is inevitable. Now, why is that a problem? Well, if you think nuclear war is inevitable, there's no problem as long as you're just a member of the public, just an ordinary Joe, and you just keep it to yourself or discuss it in your own private Bible study. But what if you're, say, the president of America? What if you're a crucial member of the government involved in negotiations during the Cold War? What if you're in charge of nuclear weapons policy and you believe completely and utterly, that nuclear war is inevitable. Well, surely that will colour your judgement, that will colour how you approach nuclear arms negotiations and how you approach your nuclear opponents. If you think we're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust anyway, then is there any point to negotiation? Is there any point to diplomacy? 
if you think it's useless, it's all going to happen in the end? Why bother trying to curb and control nuclear weapons if the nuclear war is inevitable? Maybe if you actively try and prevent nuclear war, then you're interfering with God's plan? You're going against God's will? In the book uh, Apocalypse Soon, Christian Responsibility and the Book of Revelation by Alan Lewis, he um, speaks out about this topic, about the danger of people interpreting the Book of Revelation to mean literally that nuclear war is going to happen. He says that some people read this and they read about the biblical battle of Armageddon and they say, well, it's part of God's plan. The Battle of Armageddon will be played out in the real world quite literally as a nuclear conflict and therefore we have no choice but to accept it. And to quote from the book, all of this would be hilarious were it not so obscene. It is a piece of theological pornography. He goes on to say that there is a quote, uninformed, irresponsible use of revelation by the lunatic fringe. So, as with everything else in life, um, if you have the lunatic fringe, they can take anything, I suppose. I'm not not referring to just religious lunatics here, but um, anyone who's obsessed and committed and furiously dedicated to their cause, if you give them any old piece of literature, whether it's the Bible or a novel or a comic book, their obsession and their intent will surely take the words and twist them. They'll they'll twist them to their own um, belief. That's quite normal, of course. Maybe we all do that to some extent. But in this case, if we're talking about the book of Revelation and if we're talking about politicians in power who are interpreting it that way, then it does affect all of us. Arguably, things could get quite sticky if the man or the men in charge of nuclear weapons fully believe that a nuclear war is inevitable and if they believe that By actively trying to prevent it, they're going to anger their God. The book goes on to say it would be a worry if a US president might, quote, consider pressing the nuclear button in the Christian conviction that global war was biblically predicted and divinely preordained. So we're back to the old um, belief that your fate is already determined for you by a higher power, by God. And all you can do is shuffle along and carry out his will. Which, again, is fine if you're just a normal little person leading a normal little life. But if you're someone in charge of nuclear weaponry, then yes, this could be quite frightening. The book also looks at the philosophy of um, even if you do think, well, a nuclear war is inevitable or it's God's will... Some religious people might take some comfort in that by saying, yes, but God is good. And surely a good God wouldn't allow nuclear war. But then you can immediately demolish that argument by saying, well, why did this good God allow any war? Why did he allow the Holocaust to happen, for example? Why does he allow little children to die of cancer? You know, why would this God allow some bad things to happen but not others? So it's a bit of a cop-out, really, to say that you can sit back and say, well, the good God won't allow a nuclear war. And it's dangerous to say, oh, well, we can't stop it anyway because God has willed it to happen. So let's look at Ronald Reagan. What did he think of all this? He had been interested for a long time in the idea that Armageddon was quite 
literally going to play out on Earth in his lifetime. And in, it would happen in the shape of a nuclear holocaust. According to the LA Times, he spoke to a colleague in California in 1971 and said to him, quote, For the first time ever, everything is in place for the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming of Christ. This article says that um, he went on to say, quote, It can't be long now. Ezekiel says that fire and brimstone will be rained upon the enemies of God's people. That must mean that they'll be destroyed by nuclear weapons. They exist now and never did in the past. So according to this article in the LA Times, Reagan was quite convinced, from the 70s at least, that Armageddon was coming, that it was going to happen in his lifetime, and it would happen in the form of a nuclear war. And in a TV interview in 1980, he said, quote, We may be the generation that sees Armageddon. And then, of course, we know that Reagan spoke out very bluntly against the Soviet Union when he was president in very black and white terms, in terms of good and bad, of good versus evil. I'm talking, of course, about his famous speech, or arguably his infamous speech, where he referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. No doubt that would have pleased some of his um, supporters. It worried others because it just seemed like he was um, stirring up a lot of trouble, stirring up a lot of hatred against the Soviet Union. Portraying them as evil means portraying his side as good, innocent, noble. And arguably that's a very dangerous view because it's very it's very childlike. Is there such a thing in this world as good versus evil? Can you have goodies and baddies? Or is that the way you see things when you're in the playground? It does seem like a child's view of, of the world. We are the goodies, they are the baddies, therefore we will win. It can't be as simple as that. So we have a Reagan who apparently believes in Armageddon, believes that the world could end as God's will by a nuclear war, believes that he's fighting an evil empire. But I don't mean to be disrespectful or insulting toward Reagan because we all know, everyone who's listening to this podcast will know that Reagan played a huge role, an invaluable role in ending the Cold War. So what happened? How could he have this view that nuclear war was inevitable and that he was up against evil people in the Soviet Union? And yet this is the same man who sat down with Gorbachev and talked common sense and managed to help bring things to an end. So obviously at some point his opinion must have changed. We know that he gradually toned down all his apocalyptic talk of the coming of Armageddon. So what changed things for him? Was it his assassination attempt? Was it Nancy Reagan? We know that she often tried to talk him back from the edge of all, you know, going towards the hard religious right. She was, um, she tried to coax him back from wading too deep with all of that. Was it as simple as him having some hard-headed advisors behind the scene who told him to perhaps cool it with the apocalyptic chat. Whatever the reason, Reagan's tone did relax a bit. He stopped talking about um, Armageddon or his religious belief that it was inevitable. And indeed, on the eve of the Geneva summit in 1985, he talked about these people, i.e. those who are of the religious right and believe that nuclear war was inevitable. He said, these people basically, down in their deepest thoughts, have accepted that war is inevitable and that there must come to be a war between the two superpowers. Well, I think as long as you've got a chance to strive for peace, you strive for peace. In the early 80s, lots of points where Reagan was very cavalier. 
and then it just seemed as though he did an about turn. He wrote letters to Brezhnev talking about trying to work towards um, disarmament and getting rid of nuclear weapons. Of course, his advisors were quite horrified and they tried to tone the letters down and basically extract Reagan's personality from them. So um, there was a change, certainly, and thank goodness there was, because it worked. He dropped his apocalyptic talk and he began talking about peace instead and emphasising that a nuclear war is not inevitable. He and Gorbachev can sit down and talk, and they did, and we all know how things ended up. Now, there were lots of other uh, religious voices in America speaking out against the bomb, um, from this podcast, uh, and I suppose from, from Britain at least, the popular perception of America during the Cold War is always, you know, thinking of religious right. But um, the Catholic Church in America, for example, were very outspoken um, in the Reagan years against the bomb. So it was never just very black and white. However, the most sensible thing I've ever read about nuclear weapons and about the chances of getting rid of them came from a, a religious pamphlet, which... I was quite surprised about. I would look to religious activists for, you know, philosophy and a different take on things, but I didn't expect to look to them for common sense. And yet, when I was in the CND archives, I found a pamphlet called Can Christians Accept the Nuclear Deterrent? written by Diana Collins. And it is the most sensible thing I've ever heard about about nuclear uh, disarmament. Um, I don't think we can get rid of nuclear weapons just now. I think I want to get rid of them, obviously. They're horrific. They're. I don't know why we don't all run out into the street and scream <laughs> at the absolute horror and, and hopelessness that they've placed upon us. But uh, Diana Collins, in this pamphlet, she has said, um, and I, I agree with her, we need to make a leap forward. Uh, a spiritual leap is what she calls it. I don't know if I'm a very spiritual person, I'm certainly not a religious person, but I do agree with her nonetheless. Let me quote, she can say it better than I can, let me quote from her pamphlet. This is the part that really, really struck me. Um, Ultimately, this is a spiritual matter. War is made in the minds and hearts of men, and it is there that it must be abolished. Humanity has to make a great spiritual leap forward. War must become impossible to the human mind. We have outgrown other horrors, and she names things like cannibalism, slavery, and child labour. And she says, and so this is how we must come to view war. This is not idealism. This is sober realism. And I would agree with her in that. We have to get to the point where a nuclear war, or any war, seems as disgusting and as horrific and as arcane as cannibalism does. You know, we know that cannibalism used to be practised. These things all happened once and they're horrifying to, to any decent person now. They're, they're horrifying. So we have to come to think of war in the same way. And that will only come after a spiritual leap. Now, how do we make such a spiritual leap? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Nonetheless, we have to somehow get to a state in humanity where we think war impossible that's that's awful that's horrific whereas just now war of course is a tool which some governments still resort to so we have to make a great spiritual leap forward the idea of going to war or of launching a nuclear weapon must become as appalling to us as the thought of cannibalism is we're obviously not there yet i don't know if we'll ever get there and i don't know how we get there somebody much more intelligent than me will need to work on that one 
But it does seem as though that's the only way it will happen. If humanity becomes so wise and mature and civilised that we think war, that's disgusting. I can't believe we used to indulge in such a horrific thing. How brutal and backward we were to have indulged in war. That's not going to happen anytime soon though, is it? Nuclear war might get to us before we can get to that nice stage of enlightenment. But um, I just wanted to mention that because I'm not religious. I was brought up in a religious household. I was taken to mass every Sunday, but um, I don't adhere to that at all. When I became, when I got to 16, I got my first job in Marks and Spencer, and my gran gave me permission not to go to mass anymore on a Sunday because I was working on a Sunday. And of course, gran said the Wayne has to. You know, she still needs time to get her homework done. We can't have her doing homework and working and going to Mass on the same day. So I was allowed not to have to go to Mass anymore. So that was me. At 16, I got away from religion and I didn't ever go back to it. I'm quite dismissive of it. Um, But the most sensible thing I've ever read about nuclear disarmament came from this little nuclear, this little religious pamphlet in CND's archive. And when I get dismissive about religion, I remember that. And I remember um, the wise words from this um, Christian CND pamphlet. So that's us finished for this week. I must admit I'm quite glad to be finished this episode. It's a heavy topic. Um, I just want to give you a quick update on my nuclear history that I'm writing. I've been I've started sending it out to literary agents. So hopefully we'll I'll soon have some news for you. Um, if you want to keep in touch with my brave little books, Foray Out Into The Real Worlds, uh, follow me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or get me on Facebook at my Nuclear Britain page or check my website at juliemcdowell.com but yep, I'm at the stage now of sending it out to some agents seeing what they think of it, seeing if there's anything, any interest out there in my nuclear history book. I also want to thank my patrons who support this podcast with some money every month thank you to Angus McClellan Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw Claire Brennan, Colin McGee Damian Ryan Douglas Greenshields, Gordy McNair, Jonathan Abelins, Kieran Taylor, Lainey Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Richard Grundy, Sean Judge, Sarah Williams, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace, and Wynne Grant. And thank you especially to my patron Brian Outlaw, who kindly this week sent me some nuclear history books. He got in touch with me through the Facebook page and he miraculously had a few books that I didn't own. I thought I had them all. And he very kindly sent me a nuclear book and some pamphlets to add to my collection. So thank you very much for that. And I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast. See you all then.